Hello and welcome to this latest University of Brighton podcast. I'm Edwin Gilson and my guest this week is Professor Martin Smith of the School of Environment and Technology. Martin teases his inaugural lecture, which takes place on October the 30th, and for which more information can be found in the podcast description. But we started by talking about the roots of Martin's passion for geology and the earth sciences. I grew up in Yorkshire, so um, the seaside was always Whitby, and walking was always Pennines or the Lake District, so there was always a lot of geology going on around me. And particularly, you know, trips to the seaside, I spent a lot of time looking for fossils, um, didn't carry on into my professional career in geology, though I still have something to do with fossils occasionally. Um, but that's where I started very interested in geology. And then I was lucky enough to go to a secondary school that offered geology as part of the curriculum at um, O-level and A-level. Ah, well, I was going to say exactly that, actually. Geology is maybe not perhaps the kind of subject you would expect to learn in high school for a GCSE, but you actually did. Yeah, well, there are still a lot of schools who offer um, GCSE geology and A-level geology now. Um, it's not universal, though. So not everybody um, gets chance to do that at school. But usually um, that isn't a requirement to go on into geology at university if that's what interests you, um, because really it's the application of other sciences to the development of the earth and understanding earth processes. So you can come to it from physics, you can come to it from chemistry, you can come to it from biology, you can come to it from geography. Well, that's something else we might touch on a bit later, yeah. actually. But So was it really those early hiking experiences in, in the Lake District and Whitby that, that kind of ignited your passion then? Would yeah, you say? yeah, I mean, I've... Loved mountains, being in mountains, walking up mountains, sometimes falling down mountains for most of my life. And it was um, really, I was very interested in sciences at school and I wanted to go into sciences. Um, I didn't want to spend three years um, in a laboratory, in a lab coat, doing chemistry, which is was my other sort of strength and my big interest at school. So I went for geology. And would you care to elaborate on that falling down the mountain story just yet? <laughs> <laughs> um I have at various points, either recreational walk, walking or whilst working, fallen um, on mountains um, and had various stitches. I've never had anything too drastic happen to me. <laughs> OK, yeah. good to hear. So you, you have talked about your education a bit, um, but I wonder if we could trace it now from, from high school um, to go on a bit further. So um, could you explain your academic background from that early point then? Where and what did you go on to study and how did you come to arrive here? Yeah, um, yeah I did a BSc Geology at the University of Liverpool and that gave me the opportunity, because of their degree structure there, to take inorganic and physical chemistry as well. Um, it wasn't a common choice, um, but that gave me opportunity to get a really strong chemistry background. And from there, I went on to a PhD at the University of Leeds um, with an exciting title of the Geochemistry of Water-Rock Interaction in Progressively Focused Hydrothermal Flow, which sounds a bit esoteric, but that was what I worked on. Um, and I worked postdoctorally, either doing further research or in consultancy at Leeds University for another two years, and then got a job at the Natural History Museum as a researcher for four years there. And then came to the University of Brighton. And then that. from there, got my first teaching role at the University of Brighton. Yes. Okay, so how was that little gap outside of academia then working at the Natural History Museum? Was that quite refreshing after that much academia? It's, it was great. It's a fantastic place to work, though most of the time you're in the basement if you're one of the science staff. Um, it's very much organised along academic lines, um, although there's no student presence, you're still involved with public outreach and dealing with visitors to the museum, um, but also you get to carry out research on the fantastic collections they've got there. So I was involved in um, mineralogy research there, geochemistry research using their facilities and working on 
some of the, you know the national collections of rocks and minerals. And would you say that kind of work and that research still kind of informs your work to date? Or? Yes, we're still working on certain aspects of things that I worked on at the Natural History Museum, so yeah. Sure, okay. And your upcoming inaugural lecture obviously marks your new status as a professor. How does it feel to be a professor, firstly? Um, fantastic. Um, it's, you know, it's been 20 years of hard work to get here, and now to have that recognition um, feels great. Um, and it gives me a chance to keep pursuing some of the things I've really been interested in so what is the biggest difference you think between doctor and professor even even mentally is there a mental difference the way you think of yourself <laughs> i didn't wake up differently the next following morning definitely <laughs> okay. um not necessarily i'm doing the same things i always did um i think i'm now being moved towards more of a mentoring role as well so working with other members of staff to develop project ideas um and out- external links so yeah. okay well let's get into your inaugural lecture then it takes place on october the 30th and it's entitled Minerals, Metals and Microbes, What Happens When Water and Geology Meet. Uh, it might be a bit of a tall order, but I wonder if you could please describe what you'll be discussing in your lecture in a nutshell. Yeah, well, through my career, the, the linking theme for all the research projects I've worked on has been what water does to rocks. Um, and that's critically important for water resources. If you live in Brighton, 90% of your tap water comes out of wells. It doesn't come from surface rivers and reservoirs. Um, The big area I've worked on in my career has been mineral deposit formation and a huge percentage of mineral resources are formed through hydrothermal processes. So that's hot water getting into rocks and causing chemical changes, depositing new minerals. And from my time at the Natural History Museum and now, um, one of the things I work on there has become a huge issue, which is rare metals and uh, particularly the rare earth elements. So as we move to renewable energy generation, We've got a huge expansion in certain sorts of technology that we're using. Um, There are things like lithium and cobalt in batteries that we don't use and don't produce enough of now, but we're all going to drive electric cars in 20 years' time. Um, There are things like selenium and tellurium that go into solar cells, and we're going to expand our use of those, but equally, they're not produced. And the one I work on personally is the rare earth elements. So certain of the rare earth elements go into making high field strength magnets, So if you want to make a lightweight turbine engine to go in a wind farm, then you want a um, neodymium-based magnet. Um, So it's an iron core, as usual, but it has neodymium in it. If you want a lightweight motor to drive an electric car, so again, we're just looking at the same sorts of technology and we need the same sorts of materials. Um, And these things don't have currently world supply is dominated by China because China was the only country that focused on producing them up until recently when the demand suddenly expanded. So now there's a major interest in where can we find new resources of these materials and how can we produce them in a more environmentally sensitive way. And that's taken me to China. I've worked with the Institute, uh, sorry, the Peking University in Beijing. It's taken me to Madagascar, Mongolia. Um, It's been a fantastic opportunity to travel the world looking at various styles of rock formation so that's going to be a core of what i will talk about is the how hydrothermal systems and weathering systems can form deposits of rare metals but i'll conclude it with the microbes part because this has been a recent development for me but we've been working with local harbors on a problem in steel corrosion so marine steel corrosion sounds a long way from geology but what The problem they've been having is microbes, bacteria, colonising marine steel surfaces. Um, And different types of bacteria with different metabolic pathways 
um, generate different compounds in the water column, and particularly hydrogen sulfide when there's a lack of oxygen. And that then oxidizes, and it's oxidized by a different strain of bacteria, and it generates sulfuric acid. And steelwork is failing five, up to five times faster than predicted. So that's a huge problem for existing um, steelwork in harbours, in shipping, in water treatment plants. But it's also um, an issue when we go to thinking about all the new construction we have at sea, offshore wind farms. We've got to deal with these kind of corrosion problems and understand them in order to be able to protect marine infrastructure from them. So I'm going to end the talk by looking at how microbes interact with minerals and metals in the environment and how that ties into the geochemistry as well. Sure, and you, you, touching on that kind of um, clean energy technology, is that one of the things that excites you most about your research and is a real driving factor for you and has always been, I suppose? Um, yeah, well, I started working on the rare earths and it was quite an academic problem, but it's turned into a major issue at the moment. And it's very, very exciting and important area to be working at the present time and the recognition that if we want to move away from producing carbon dioxide as the output from energy production, we actually need to move from extracting hydrocarbons to extracting new minerals and new materials. We can't meet an expanding demand with recycling. We're going to have to look at new resources. It's critically important we learn how to recycle these materials as well. That's not my personal research, because um, we want to keep um, keep their life cycle in going for as long as possible before we send things to waste. But if we're going to use more more of them, we need to find new resources. Um, and things like uranium and thorium, natural, um, natural processes can concentrate them up in the same way they concentrate up the rare metals. So we need to look for deposit types that concentrate the rare earths, but not um, uranium and thorium. And this is where we've been doing in Madagascar, we've actually been looking at weathered rock instead of fresh bedrock, where we might get processes that separate elements out in this way. You mentioned that um, some part of what you were saying there seemed a long way from geology. Do you think that might be the case for people that come to the lecture in general, expecting a geology lecture, and yet they find out about clean energy technology, they find out about mineral deposit, they find out about lots of things well, that they perhaps wouldn't have thought of as geology? The linking theme is always minerals, and mineralogy, although it's a core part of geology, we have to understand the minerals that make up the earth. Um, Minerals occur in all sorts of other areas as well. They're going into industrial applications. Um, the processes that corrode steel and concrete and break steel and concrete down in the environment produce new minerals. They're still related to things we can find in nature. So the fundamental theme there is mineralogy. And I'll be putting it in a geological context in places, but I'll end by thinking about how that impacts construction and um, how long we can expect different kinds of structures to survive in marine environments. Okay, how does it make you feel on a kind of emotional level almost to be on the forefront of this of this search for new clean energy technology? Because it must on the one hand make you feel very positive and optimistic, but on the other hand maybe make you feel like we're not doing enough and not doing enough quickly, I suppose. Um, how, how do you feel doing it? Um, I'm fascinated always by the science problem and that's the main driver for me. It's really good that something I, I'm involved with is contributing to development in that way. Um, I think the downside of it is, and it's part of the job of people like me who work in this area, is that people are setting targets, um, thinking we will change to these types of energy generation very quickly, which is great, we need to do that, and they're not thinking about the resource implications. Um, if you want to run on um, electric motors and turbine, electric turbines, then we need 
to make a lot more high-strength magnets than we do already. But equally, high-strength magnets are going into all sorts of other technology as well. Um, everybody listening to this has some dysprosium on them. They may not be aware of it, but they have. Can you expand on that? It's in your phone. Ah, okay. If you want a speaker or a lot of other components in there that you can miniaturize but still produce output that's good enough to be usable, you need some um, very strong magnet technology. There's a whole range of applications in electronics as well, but if I get into that, I'm going well beyond my uh, subject knowledge. Well, just going back to but what you said. This is where, um, a mobile phone contains a significant proportion of the periodic table, um, metals you've probably never heard of. Which people might not know, yeah. yeah. And so going back to what you said on the last answer then, do you think uh, there should be more consultation from, from government leaders to, to scientists in terms of setting those targets? Because you seem to suggest that the targets are often too soon or I unrealistic. I think in terms of global climate change, the targets are absolutely right. We have to work towards this. But when you set those targets, you also have to understand that it's going to take resources as well. And that has is coming now. People are starting to see that. The rare earths have been very much in the news restrictions in supply but so is lithium if we want rechargeable batteries for different types of technology particularly large scale if we all shift to electric cars then the supply of lithium and cobalt becomes very important and people have recognized that um, so there is recognition of the problem um, but solutions we're going to take research in areas like mining what about kind of public awareness thing because we all know that climate change and environmental breakdown has come much more into the public consciousness since the turn of the century maybe perhaps but do you think enough people know the exact science behind it, the kind of science you're talking about, or do you think people need to know the science behind it? They just need to know that the kind of basics, I suppose. I think people always need, you know, as far as possible, we need to communicate the science behind these ideas. This, these things are how what modern lifestyle depends on availability of some of these resources. And we can never meet that level of expanding demand by recycling because we're always using more. So unless pe unless we restrict demand somehow, then we're going to have to look at ways to produce these things that are environmentally sensitive. And a big part of that, of course, has to be improving recycling. But also, we need to look at resources that we can extract in an environmentally sensitive manner. Sure, OK. And moving on to the, uh, the kind of teaching in the geology and geography and, and related subjects here at the University of Brighton, then, do you think one of the great strengths of, of the department is, and the Earth Sciences Department, I should specify, is that kind of... Um, interdisciplinary approach I suppose like geochemistry is perhaps a subject you might not see taught at other universities I might be wrong but um, is geochemistry it? is taught as part of every geology uh, degree there you go and um, it's quite often there are, people can take it as optional areas in chemistry degrees as well okay um, you know my area is one aspect of geochemistry but it underpins a whole range of environmental science and a whole range of geology so it's a really big subject okay I know you place heavy emphasis on fieldwork and laboratory observation as well in your teaching. Um, could you please explain a bit about what students could expect from studying an earth sciences course here at the university? Yeah, I mean, well, geology and the rest of the earth sciences, you're applying existing sciences to um, problems in earth science, in oceanography and environmental science. Um, and all of that depends really on understanding the field situation. So, we can nowadays, we can measure things down to the atomic scale, but there's no point doing that unless we actually know the context they come on. So for my area, geochemistry, if you want to study the geochemistry of a sequence of rocks or sediments in the environment, then you need to know what the context is. So you have to go out, you have to make, make observations at field scale, you have to make maps, 
Um, you have to record details of sedimentary sections. You have to record details of the geomorphology. You're not going to get the chemical interpretation right until you understand the basic geology or geography of a situation. So we always have to deal with that field context, and it's why field work is so important in these areas. And how do you go about then identifying the areas that you are going to conduct the field working? Because there must, there must be so many areas around Europe and around the world which are sites of massive geological interest. Well, for teaching, you, yeah. Um, for teaching purposes, it comes down to um, partly to logistics. Where can we get to? But also, we have to choose areas where we can cover as wide a range of things as possible. So, I run an annual field course in Almeria in southern Spain, and within about a fifty-kilometer radius there, we can look at mountain ranges. We can look at the sedimentary basins in between, where we get the sediments that record the evolution of the Mediterranean system. We've got a volcanic zone on the south. Uh, coast of Spain. It's an extinct one, but actually that can be better sometimes for looking at the geology of these of volcanoes in the field because now they're eroded. We can see cross sections through the volcano structure. We can see the deposits um, that they make in three dimensions much better. So choosing areas like that where we can see a huge amount of geology in a small area becomes critical for teaching. We can do that in the UK as well. Cornwall is a fantastic place. The Western Isles of Scotland, Wales, all allow us this flexibility in the range of geology we can go out and observe. And how is that kind of implemented into the curriculum then? Can students expect to be doing that right from the off from the first year or does that kind of get built in as you go? Yeah, uh, for geology, if you do the single honours geology degree um, and physical geography and geology, earth and ocean science, so the main earth science degrees that we do, um, within the first month, the end of October, after you arrive at the University of Brighton, you're on your first residential field course, which is to South Wales, Pembrokeshire. So we really try and integrate the field teaching into the overall curriculum as soon as possible. And that's great for getting people understanding what they're being taught in lectures and laboratories. And it's also brilliant for the students themselves because you get to meet the rest of your cohort early on and get to know them really well early on in your degree, which is a great thing to have yeah well, it must be good for bonding between them and with you as well yes. i suppose I mean, yeah. it must be real is it a real thrill to be out in the field with the students then i think it is yeah i'm always excited when i'm going out in the field and there must be you talk about Almeria there in spain but there must be other examples when you're in a, a craggy field in england in november and it's freezing and <laughs> yeah i would say we take the students in the first year of the geology degree they will go to pembrokeshire which is some fantastic coastal cliff exposures um the sea can be quite wild and the weather can be quite wild um, they go to Ingleton, um, and I run this field course, we go to Ingleton in the second semester, where we do the basics of how to make a geological map. Um, and we have had blizzard conditions in March in, in North Yorkshire. Last year we had beautiful weather and nearly 20 degrees in March, and that's what when it becomes easy. But being out in the weather is part of it and seeing what's going on and that opportunity to uh, actually interact with the environment you're studying that's true. You can't pick and choose your weather yeah. situations, I suppose. So you haven't been back to your kind of childhood places of, you know, Lake District and, and Whitby then to, to conduct studies? Not Whitby. Um, for the geology degree, students always have to do some field work as part of their dissertation, their independent research project in their third year. So um, I regularly have supervised students working in the Lake District for their dissertation projects and Cornwall, which is where I did my PhD. So students go back there, look at the granites and the, um, the set deformation in the sediments surrounding the granites, the mineral veins um, that are, were the basis of the mining industry in Cornwall. And we go back with small groups of students to do that kind of project work every year as well. So are those students, dissertation students, more or less free to pick their own area of geological interest or...? 
they can do yeah we tend to guide people um one of the aspects for us always has to be health and safety so we need to know where people are working we need to risk assess it first so if someone wants to go off and work independently in somewhere completely new then they're going to have to convince us that it's a safe place to go and work in that way okay and you mentioned doing a phd in cornwall there why i mean we all know about the kind of uh, his- history of cornwall's coast but why specifically cornwall for you um i what i worked on at that point was tin tungsten mineralization and the geochemistry of how some of the tin mineralization formed and the types of cha- the changes in rock chemistry around the hydrothermal system so we're back to hot water circulating through the granites down there and the chemical changes that made and my PhD was to take one of those systems at a place called Cligger Head near Perrimporth, people might know Perrimporth, where there was a tin and tungsten deposit in the granite, and I looked at exactly how much water would have needed to flow through that fracture system to make that mineral deposit by taking the chemistry of the granite apart. Right, okay. And if you can think back to, I mean, so you started at the University of Brighton, was it 18 years ago, 17 years ago? Yeah, eight, well... 18 years ago. 18 years ago. Yeah. How do you think um, the teaching of geology has morphed over that time then, from then to now? Um, well, we started with a very small team and geology at Brighton grew out of engineering geology um, in the civil engineering department. So early on, we had quite a focus on engineering geology. We did a lot of work with the local chalk cliffs because that was what had been going on um, in engineering geology at the time. Rory Mortimer was the professor of geology at the time. And since then, we've greatly expanded the range of things we do Um, we've got links to hydrogeology in the local area again that takes us back to engineering and the chalk Um, and around brighton we've got a fantastic geological resource we've got international type sections for part of the chalk parts of the chalk stratigraphy that are very important to study but um, the opportunity to develop my area geochemistry the laboratory Um, changes we've had allow us to do many many more things geochemically now and that's been a big thing for me is the chance to I when I started I had to spend a lot of time working with other institutions to get access to the labs I need and I still do that but we can do an awful lot more in Brighton now with the refurbishment to the buildings the development of the labs um Sure. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mentioned Brighton being a very fertile ground for this kind of work in the surrounding area is that one of the things that drew you to Brighton and Sussex in the first place or the actual geological interest around the city. Yeah, I I wasn't somebody who'd worked on the chalk a lot before I came here, but when I came, the fat background in geochemistry I had, the link I could make then to people who were working in things like hydrogeology and water supply um, in the chalk aquifer um, meant that I could get involved in that sort of research. So I've spent quite a lot of time since I arrived at Brighton um, working on chalk geology as well. Sure, OK, another string to your bow. Well... How do you feel about moving on to some lifestyle questions? Okay. <laughs> Quick fire lifestyle questions that we ask all of our podcast subjects. You did say earlier that you hadn't really prepared any answers, which is the best way to go, I think, for this one. <laughs> so first, um, what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self, do you think? Whenever possible, say yes to opportunities. You know, Take things up, go places, find ways to do things. Um, don't think about um, reasons why you can't do something. Always try your best to take on any opportunity that's presented to you because that's the only way you're going to get some of these fantastic places and some of these fantastic um, life opportunities. Good advice. I think I might have touched on this next one already, but what is your favourite place in Sussex? My favourite place in Sussex? It's a hard one, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, but I think um, probably Beachy Head, actually, because there's an awful lot of things. It's beautiful, beautiful countryside. Um, You're near the Seven Sisters, 
and you've got this fantastic geology there as well. So I'll take it back to geology again. <laughs> but it's a beautiful place to visit and some amazing things to see. I take it there are some classes that go out to Peachy Head, are they? Yes, yeah. yeah we, we try and incorporate local area fieldwork into modules where we can. So students will get opportunity to go out to some of these places. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and what are you currently reading, watching or listening to? You can pick one of those or all three if you want. <laughs> Um, ooh, tried, that's caught me now. Um, reading, I'm reading a science fiction novel called Sideshow by Sherry S. Tepper. Um, I'm listening to Strumbellas. <laughs> um, and I'm not particularly watching anything specific at the moment. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Um, and describe your perfect weekend. You can be as thorough or as light with this one as you possibly want. I would be camping with my family, I think, usually. So, but, In the Lake yeah. District? Anywhere. Anywhere? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And who are your three fantasy dinner guests, alive or dead? I think probably I'd start with Carl Sagan because his writing in science I've always found absolutely fascinating and has inspired me no end. It's outside my area. There are big plan areas in planetary science that cross over with what I do. And it's been one of my favourite um, non-fiction authors. But um, then I'd probably go to Kim Stanley Robinson, who is a science fiction author, but wrote about colonisation of Mars in a very convincing manner. And finally, it's my guilty pleasure is graphic novels and comics. And I'd love to meet Neil Gaiman one day. Thanks to Martin for his time. You can find out how to book a free ticket for Martin's inaugural lecture in the link in the podcast description. See you next time. <laughs>